Welcome to episode 66 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Mr. Jeffrey Wayland, a medical student at the University of Queens Island Faculty of Medicine, speaks with Dr. David H. Wayne, a palliative medicine specialist at Scripps Health. Today, Mr. Wayland and Dr. Wayne discuss compassionate extubation. Hello and welcome to the AAEM RSA podcast. My name is Jeff Wayland, a fourth-year medical student at the University of Queensland Oshner Clinical School in New Orleans. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. David Wang about palliative care in the emergency department. Dr. Wang did his residency in emergency medicine at Stanford, followed by a fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine at UCSF. He is currently the director of palliative medicine at Scripps Health in San Diego, where he oversees the integration of palliative care for five emergency departments, attends on the consult service, and teaches palliative care to residents and medical students. So uh, welcome, Dr. Wang. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. Just to get started, can you talk a little bit about how you got involved in palliative care? Yeah, I'd love to. You know, I was fortunate, even as a medical student, um, I was exposed to palliative medicine, and it really reminded me a lot of kind of why I wanted to be a doctor, the chance to sit with patients, listen to them, and use my expertise to try to craft for them the best path forward. Um, From what I understand, more and more palliative care is being introduced into medical students' curriculums throughout the country. So I do think we're going to see a bit of a sea change in the coming years on how we think about caring for people at the end of their lives. A lot of times we see palliative medicine as kind of a a long-term thing, and emergency medicine often is these short patient encounters. How do you kind of marry the two, and what's the role that you see for palliative care in the emergency department? Well, you know, I think even if the time is short, it's really about the quality of the time you have. Something we tell patients, but I think it's good for us to remember as well. You have the privilege of having a very intimate encounter with people in the ED. They may be scared. They may manifest their fear in different ways, anger, entitlement, whatever it may be. But regardless of how you choose to navigate um, their emotion, how you attend with them in that time you have, a few minutes, maybe a few hours, um, you have an incredible ability to sort of steer how their entire hospital experience will be putting their minds at ease or preparing them for what may come downstream in the ICU or even just reassuring them that it was just a little bit of AGE and it's time to go home. So how do you approach this? You know, I think it's all about what's feasible in the ED. You know, we don't want a cardiologist to come down and tell us how to practice cardiology in the emergency department. We practice in a way that's logical for the competing priorities we have and the time constraints we have. So on the one hand, one of the first things is thinking about how do you practice primary palliative care, what you do day-to-day as an emergency physician. For me, that that includes being really thoughtful about your communication, how you have your goals of care conversations. Are you, for instance, asking more open-ended questions about outcomes rather than soliciting treatments? Um, Are you presenting things in a way that makes sense for what a family wants to achieve rather than just Um, going through a menu list of resuscitation options. So thinking about how you structure your communication to make the most of those few minutes you have at bedside. Better symptom management, you know, instead of reverting to the usual 1-2 morphine dilated punch, uh, being a little bit more thoughtful about what opioids they were on before, what is a safe amount that I can give here, maybe it is okay to give one 
two milligrams of IV dilaudid at a time. For patients who are comfort care, for instance, not just putting them on an opioid drip, which you all remember from pharmacokinetics, takes about 10 hours to get to steady state, but actually using opioid boluses and treating their symptoms. So there are certain things, I think, in our ED wheelhouse that any emergency provider uh, can certainly implement to improve their care of patients. But then thinking broadly about the role of emergency medicine within the broader healthcare system, there's a lot of opportunity for growth and partnership. We know palliative care, the earlier it is, the earlier it's integrated into a patient's care continuum, the better outcomes uh, they have in terms of visiting the ED less, being admitted to the hospital less, spending less time in the hospital. These are things that not just your, your ED chairman cares about, but also your hospital administrators. And so what we call palliative care, early palliative care, is it meets the triple aim of being better care for the patient, better for care for the population's health, and also being better stewards of resources around healthcare utilization. So when you're working in the emergency department, are you always wearing your palliative care hat? Are you having these conversations very early with patients? When are you going to bring up palliative care discussion? You know, the emergency physician is in a, is a unique position. We don't have the relationships that an oncologist or a cardiologist has with the patient. Sometimes that cuts against us, and we don't know a lot of the story. But sometimes it liberates us to have an independent perspective on where we see a patient's care trajectory headed. So there are opportunities every day to see patients come through to ED who might benefit from a referral to palliative care clinic or to the consult service or maybe even to hospice. Is every patient that I see someone I try to actively send to one of those services? No, but some of those same principles we talked about, communication, symptom management, that can be used across the board. I think it is important, Jeff, when you see those opportunities to do something, to maybe speak some truth into someone's life that they have either not heard or not been in a, an emotional position to hear before, you could radically change how they spend the rest of their days. And it's hard to quantify that, but I like to think if I or a family member of mine were in a position, I would really appreciate that kind of gentle um, truth-giving from an emergency doc. So you mentioned talking about uh, outcomes rather than talking about, you know, listing off some interventions they can choose between. What are some other kind of tips or ways that you can phrase these discussions to make it easier on the patients and their family? Yeah, absolutely. You know, ED docs, we care about treatments. We care about, are we going to tube this person? Are we going to line them? Are we going to send them to the ICU or to the floor? Families care about outcomes. They care about, am I going to walk after this? Gosh, I'm really sick here with my sepsis. Is my dad going to be able to um, be independent after this? Is he going to be able to clothe himself? Will he preserve his dignity? You're telling me I'm having a massive stroke and I need a breathing tube. And after this, am I going to be able to speak? Will I still be able to um, have meaningful conversations with my family? These are the things that are, are important to families. So what I always recommend to my colleagues is start your conversation with asking, what's your understanding of your illness? What's important to you right now? How has this illness changed the way you live your life? This prevents you from putting words in their mouth later. They're going to tell you what quality of life is to them. And they'll say like, oh, you know, it, he was, he's very vibrant, but with the cancer now, he can't walk more than a few steps without getting tired and he sleeps a lot. 
gosh, it sounds like he hasn't gotten to the golf course in at least a few months. Yeah. Sounds like the illness has taken a lot away from him that's really valuable. Yeah, it definitely has. And then after you've kind of level set and you you know a little bit about what's important to this family, then you break the bad news and you say, well, unfortunately, I have some bad news to share with you that we're in a very different position today. Maybe you were very doing very well with your heart failure, um, but every hospitalization you've had has kind of taken a little bit off the top. And now the chances of you getting back there, unfortunately, are very low. And I don't even think, even if we take you to the ICU, I don't think we're going to be able to get you on that cruise to the Bahamas. And I'm sorry to say, but I, I think you're dying from your illness. And that last part is really important. You know, call it what it is. It's hard to use that word. It's really hard to say it to somebody you've never met and you're only caring for for the last 10 minutes. But that changes the tone of the conversation when people hear the prognosis. And it helps them think more clearly about kind of what's important next. And then in terms of what next, what I would say for these conversations is it's, you know, I think it's important to make a recommendation. Emergency physicians are highly paid professionals. You're not just there to present a menu of items. You're not here to say, do you want CPR and intubation? Even describing them in a scary way, for instance, you know, we might break ribs or have to put this really big tube down your, down your uh, windpipe. I think that scares people, but that doesn't get at the heart of the matter, which is does it help them achieve the quality of life they want? And if you've taken the time to hear them out and ask those questions, indeed, you are you have the authority and please then also have the confidence in saying, you know, I, I don't think these are the kind of things that are going to bring you back to the quality of life you want. And perhaps I can introduce to you another way, a way in which we might just keep your loved one comfortable, will be aggressive about managing their symptoms, easing any distress and allow them to die a natural death from their illness. And that is a very different conversation that I think is being held in, in many EDs across the country. So it sounds like you're talking a lot about uh, the language used. You've talked about aggressive comfort care. You've talked about being straightforward about dying. Um, is, there, is there special training that you're able to give to physicians to kind of make this part of the lexicon? Or, or how do we... How do we kind of change our conversation the way we converse with patients? I think there is a, there's a pension. It's not restricted to emergency physicians. It's really all medical uh, doctors and perhaps all professionals, which is the, the more experienced you get, we feel this need to give a lot of information. Somehow our value to patients and our families is how much we know. So therefore, we must demonstrate what we know by talking a lot, talking a lot about specific interventions. I don't know if any of you have ever been in the position of being uh, a surrogate or a family member yourself of an, of an ill loved one. Think about how hard it was to hear what the doctor was saying. Even with all of your medical knowledge and experience, you can't turn off your emotional brain at that moment. How much harder must it be for our patients and families when they're trying to get that from us, knowing so much less? My point being, for these conversations, be a human being listen, ask open-ended questions. You can be an amazing, caring physician to them without necessarily giving them a lot of information. And then as to what, how to learn more about how to have these conversations, um, certainly AAEM 
the palliative care interest group has a primer available on the website that you can download. Um, you can also consider spending some time with your palliative care team and seeing how they approach conversations, which is probably very different than how you see modeled by your, your ED attendings and colleagues. So we get to this point where you're talking about things that, that attendings can do um, and, and to some extent residents. How do, how do interns or medical students, people who are early in their careers, get involved in this and maybe help facilitate this transition to comfort care or bring it into the conversation somehow without it overstepping their bounds with their attendings? You know, the practice of emergency medicine is ever-changing. That's what makes this field dynamic and new. And our, our field, more than most, I think, are embracing of new ideas because we haven't been ingrained in tradition. Medical students, residents now, have much more exposure to palliative care than they did um, the people who've been practicing this much longer. In fact, in general, the traditions of medicine have evolved, and we're thinking more and more about how do we best support people living with serious illness. And that's really what palliative care is. Part of it is the end of life, but part of it is helping people live the best life possible, f live the best they can for as long as they can. And so I, was, I would encourage any medical student or resident, if you've had the conversation with families, you learned about some goal they have that either is being met or won't be met by the current care trajectory, you should bring that up to your attending. They may not agree, and they may practice medicine in the way they're used to, and that is okay, because medicine makes room for a lot of different personalities and practice styles. Um, but you should feel confident that you do nothing wrong by translating what you've heard from the family into what you think might be a clinical path to reach or not reach that goal. You mentioned the AAEM Palliative Care Interest Group as a, a great way to get kind of learn more. Are there any other resources you'd recommend for someone who wants to kind of get more involved in this? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I think this is a new field in medicine. The community is small. Um, the resources are not are agnostic to particular organizations. Uh, ASAP also has a mentorship uh, database that they're working on. And the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, AHBM, offers free membership to all medical students and residents. And they are more than happy to set you up with a mentor uh, or op other opportunities to explore this further. Thank you very much for your time. Again, this was Dr. David Wang discussing palliative care in the emergency department. Dr. David Wang, thank you again very much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. And um, thanks so much for everyone listening. To me, obviously, this is a very important topic and dear to my heart. I hope you can take something useful from this for your next shift and do better for your patients and their families. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.